want to keep that open there at 1 John chapter 5. As I said, we're going to finish and conclude our series. Uh, I think this is the 15th sermon in our series in 1 John. What we've seen in this letter over the last three or so months is that John is writing this letter to Christians who are afraid, who have been rocked and undermined in their faith. And he's writing this this letter to encourage them. You see that there in verse 13 of 1 John chapter 5. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. See, the purpose of why John is writing to to these Christians, he's writing them to them for their assurance so that they might know God truly. And in fact, John has written like this before. At the very conclusion to the gospel that John wrote, the gospel of John, John writes in a similar way. He says this at the end of the gospel of John, in John chapter 20, verse 31. These things have been written so that you may believe in the name of Jesus the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. See why John wrote the gospel? He wrote the gospel not simply out of an interest to history or even biography. He writes the gospel of John, this book about Jesus' life. He writes this with a purpose. And the purpose of why he wrote the gospel was such that people would come to believe in Jesus. But that's not exactly why he writes this book, this letter of 1 John. It's it's different. Have a listen again. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. He's not writing 1 John so that you might believe. That's why he wrote the Gospel of John primarily. He's writing 1 John to those who already believe, to this group of Christians, this church, and perhaps churches. He's writing to those who already confess Jesus as Lord. And he writes because he wants those people to have a depth of faith. He wants them to be able to weather what's before them right now as People desert Jesus and desert them. He wants them to be able to not just weather that storm, but the storms that are to come. He wants to give these Christians assurance, a robust assurance of true and saving knowledge. And John sees assurance as so important. He writes to strengthen it. And I think this is very helpful Because what John appreciates is that assurance isn't automatic. Often we hear that, yes, if we trust in Jesus, then we should have assurance. But I know the reality of our lives. We don't always have that level of assurance. You see, assurance, Christian assurance, isn't something that's automatic. No, in fact, what John helps us appreciate here is that assurance needs to be cultivated. And 
In fact, we see a bit of a progression in the way in which assurance is cultivated. Because John's first desire, say in the Gospel of John, was for them to believe the truth. Oh, sorry, to hear the truth. And then at, that's, that's the first step. The second step is then John wants us to believe in that truth. And then what we see picked up, particularly in the book of 1 John, what we've seen over the last 14 weeks or so, is that he wants us to live the truth. And now, as he concludes this letter, John wants his readers to be assured of the truth. See the progression? It's to hear the truth, to believe in the truth, to live the truth, and then to be assured of the truth. And this is, I think, one of the very encouraging things that opening up the Bible does for us. It reassures us of the reality of our lack of assurance. In fact, this is a topic or an area that the Bible explores in numerous times and in numerous ways. You see, because God in his infinite wisdom knew that his precious children would struggle, would struggle in the first century as John wrote and would struggle in the 21st century as we read this letter in the life of our church today. And John wants to give us as Christian people assurance because assurance isn't merely for our own peace of mind as important as that is. Assurance for the Christian gives a stability and gives an energy to, Christian, to the Christian life and service. And so 1 John, as we've read it, in, in some ways has been a tough book. There are numerous things that we've looked at that have, um, at least for me, been soul-searching, have meant that I've really had to examine my life and my assumptions in life. But John's purpose is not to discourage us in that. In fact, that's where we start to become encouraged, where so many of the false things that we trust are undermined, and when those false things are undermined, that's when real and pure faith is seen. So it's important for us to remember that encouragement in the Christian life, assurance in the Christian life is not automatic. And so we ought to pray. We ought to pray for ourselves that we would be assured. We ought to pray for one another. In a group of people like this today, I'm sure there are people who are struggling with the certainty that they have in terms of their relationship with God. And so an assured Christian is a bold Christian, an energetic Christian, who's active in the service of the Lord, but assurance isn't automatic. It's something that needs to be cultivated. The word needs to be heard, believed, and lived for us to grow in our assurance. And then John picks up a second point off the back of this. So it's the importance of assurance in the Christian life, but there's, there's something that's really crucial in his mind when it comes to assurance. That's in verses, 17, verses sorry, 14 to 17. Christian assurance 
is also connected with prayer. Because John talks in verses 14 to 17 about the impact of assurance in the area of prayer. As we pray according, in accordance with God's will, we pray with the assurance that we know God and that we are his children. And this, in fact, transforms the practice of prayer. It makes sense, doesn't it? If we aren't assured of our relationship with God, that undermines and affects our ability to speak to him or to want to speak to him. And so John wants to assure his readers for their own sake and for their own peace of mind, but he wants to assure them not just for that, he wants to assure them such that their lives might be directed in prayer towards him. What does prayer do? Oh, we know it's important, but what, is it, what does it actually do? Well, some Christians today say that prayer changes God's mind. Some Christians say, no, that's not right. It doesn't change God's mind. It changes things in our world. And then other Christians say that, no, no, it doesn't change God, God's mind or things or realities in our world. It actually changes you. So which is it? Does prayer change God's mind? Does prayer change stuff in life? Or does prayer change us? Well, firstly... In prayer, we don't change God's mind. Um, if we did, this, I think, would be a frightening reality. If we change God's mind, if God's mind was at the behest of the whims of our desires. We do, in the Old Testament, have passages like Exodus chapter 32 and 33 where we have the language of God changing his mind. But if you look up those passages in Exodus 32 and 33, it's clear that what is being talked about is Israel coming in line with God's will. And God, in his mercy, had previously withdrawn his punishment, but that punishment was contingent upon Israel being either, punishment coming back, either repentant or unrepentant. And so when it speaks about God changing his mind, it doesn't reflect so much a reality of God's mind but a change of Israel's attitude towards God. So we don't change God's mind. But does prayer change things? Does it change stuff in our life? Well, in one sense, yes. But in another sense, no. Because uh, God may use, in his purposes, our prayers to change things. But he doesn't have to. Things can occur within our world that aren't the direct result of our prayers. And so, thirdly, some people would say that all prayer does affect us. But in terms of prayer, we don't simply change God's mind or change our world or indeed change ourselves. But in prayer, what happens is we become the instruments of God's will. We become God's instruments to affect 
his will. And so his grace, and in his grace, God ordains to work out his plans through the use of our prayers. We see this in the Old Testament, for example, in Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9, God uses Daniel's prayer, praying that God might take his people back home to Jerusalem. God uses that specific prayer of Daniel to bring back his people from Exodus. And John is saying here that our boldness in prayer is very much tied to our assurance of salvation. John wants us to have a confidence in our prayer. He doesn't want us to be presumptuous in our prayer. So he says this in verse 14. This is the confidence that we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Listen to how he puts it in verse 15. If we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what he asked of him. John speaks almost in the past tense here. And he's saying that this confidence of relationship that we have with God spills over into the way that we address God. We have this, verse 14, this confidence in coming to God. If we are confident Christians, if we have the assurance of our relationship with him, that drives us to the very throne of God. But notice he makes it clear that we're not to be presumptuous in prayer because we're to pray there whatever we ask according to his will. In one sense, John wants us to be bold in prayer, but not presumptuous in prayer. And and there's a tension and a balance between those two things. I, I think you can think of examples of boldness in prayer and of presumption in prayer. God wants us to be bold in prayer, but not presumptuous. He's wanting us to be assured in prayer, but he's also wanting us to pray in accordance with God's will. And what he says there in verses 14 and 15 is really significant. Because John wants us to be bold and confident that God will hear our prayers And he puts it this way in verse 15, and if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. John wants us to be totally confident that God will hear our prayers. And so even in verse 15, he speaks of it in the past tense. It's as if, as we've prayed, God's already answered our prayers. Whatever we have, whatever we ask. Now, sometimes this gets confused for Christian people and they say they uh, tend to speak in terms of prayer, uh, in terms of, I think, a form of presumptuousness. Uh, We're going to pray and we're going to speak this into reality by faith. Um, I don't think that's the boldness that John is speaking of here. I think that's a presumptuousness Because John, at the same time, as he says, ask whatever we ask, he also says there in verse 15, as we ask according to his will. So it's not as if we just hedge our bets. You know, sometimes that's uh, when people pray 
You might think of people praying according to God's will as hedging our bets. Um, If God um, answers our prayers, well, that's all well and good. But if he doesn't answer our prayers, well, we'll just pray according to his will. But that's not what John is speaking of here. He's speaking of a confidence. He's speaking of a confidence knowing that God will hear our prayers. And he wants us to pray boldly. He wants us to pray boldly, but at the same time, he wants us to pray in a way that always acknowledges that his will is over and above our will. We come to him as his children with our own wills with our own desires, and it's right that we come in prayer that way. But John wants to remind us that we, as we come that way in boldness, we also come that way knowing that over and above our will and the way that we see things is indeed a God who is sovereign, who knows more than us. And in fact, this is the very way that Jesus himself came in prayer. Jesus, the one who knew so much more than us, had pure desires unlike us, he came to God, the Father, in this very way. Jesus says, when you pray, always pray for God's will to be done. And not only did Jesus tell us to pray in that way, but Jesus also modelled prayer in that way. When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating with drops of blood, he prayed, not my will but your will be done. And so as John heard Jesus teach this, as he saw Jesus model this kind of prayer, he picks it up and includes it here at the very conclusion of his letter such that we would pray boldly to be assured that God does answer our prayers, but that we pray in accordance with his will. The third section that John picks up on here is in verses 16 and 17. In verses 16 and 17, we have some notoriously difficult verses. John, what John is doing here in verses 16 and 17 is giving us an example of how to pray. Now, it's an example that springs from, I think, the context in the church that John is writing to. And I think it goes something like this, that if you're praying for somebody else, and in this case, in verses 16 and 17, the case of somebody falling in to sin, John knows that we ought to be praying for that person who has fallen into sin. We ought to bring them before God. We ought to come before God boldly. That's how we should be praying for one another. But John says says there in verses 16 and 17 that if we pray in accordance with God's will, that that brother will turn from sin and God will hear his prayer. But then he adds this statement. He says, I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. What does John mean by that? Well, This is a tricky section. A lot of people have tried to work this out. Some people think he's talking about some specific sin that's occurring within the people that John is writing to. Some people think uh, that he's talking about blaspheming the Holy Spirit. But I think 
Uh, the best way to understand those verses is that John is writing to this particular group of people, a context where there are many people who have renounced their faith. They've been active Christians and have now fallen away. They've turned their backs on Jesus and the Jesus of the apostles and they've left the church. And I think what John is saying here is he says, if you, if you see a brother who's falling into sin, pray for him. Come to God on his behalf. And God in his mercy will turn him from his sin. But, John warns us, but don't pray, Lord, even though that person renounces Jesus, save him anyway. Because that's never in accordance with God's will. John is saying, I think, in the specific context that those who are falling away, we should bring them before God in prayer. But we ought not to do this in a way that violates God's will. We ought not do this in a way that's contrary to what God says and has said. John is applying this general principle to this hard situation that's occurred in the group of people that John is writing to. And often we know something of this. Uh, There are people, family and friends, who we pray for. There are family and friends who we'd long to see, come to know God. And there are times in which we would love for God to save them in any way, any way possible. But what we need to remember as we pray is that God will never save anyone outside of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And I think this is a similar uh, situation that's occurring here in verses 16 and 17, that we need to pray in accordance with God's will. Finally, John in this section reminds us of the new life. He concludes his letter with a reminder of the reality that Christians have been brought into. We've been Verse 18, verse 19, sorry, we know that we are the children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and that we are in him who is true, even his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. See, what John picks up on as he concludes this letter is the reality of new birth, that every Christian has participated in. Because becoming Christian isn't just turning over a new leaf. It's not one area of our life that's changed. It's not just this spiritual, uh, religious area. That's not how the Bible thinks about becoming a Christian. Becoming a Christian is a revolution in every part of our lives. We are children of God. We've been reborn as children of God. This is an image that John has picked up on quite a number of times throughout the letter. To be born again means to become a whole new person in every area of life. And there are three areas that he picks up on there. He picks up on the mind in verse 20. He picks up on the heart in verse 19. And he picks up on our behaviour in verse 18. And if we are Christian people, 
we're going to experience a change, a radical change in our minds. We're going to experience a radical change in our hearts, and we are going to experience a radical change in our behaviour. And all three of those places that John speaks of here, all three of them are affected by the change, and they all interlock. So just briefly, I want to touch on each one of them as we close. There in verse 20, John reminds us that the Son of God has come and he's given us understanding. We have a change of mind. See, a lot of people think that to become a Christian, it's simply a matter of, I didn't believe in God, now I've become a Christian, I do believe in God. But that's not what John understands this change to be there in verse 20. He understands it to be a transformation of our whole selves so that we know him who is true, that we may know him, that we may experience something in knowing him and that we are in him who is true even in his son Jesus Christ. You see, perhaps uh, some of your friends invite you to hear a singer and um, they've told you about this singer and they've said how fantastic she is. But it's only when they invite you to go along and you hear the singer perform. And it really is amazing how she sings. And you're caught up in the moment of her high notes or her chorus. It's then that you begin to know that she is an amazing singer. And this is what John is speaking of here. See, we're swept up in the knowledge of God. We're swept up in a relationship with him. And so in verse 20, we're moved into new birth, and that means we don't just know about God. It's not that we didn't believe that he existed and now that we do. No, in becoming Christian, we know him, not just facts about him, but we have a relationship with him. He's given us understanding so that we might know him. Secondly, it's transformation of our heart. You see there in verse 19, we know that we are the children of God and the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Now, when it says uh, we are the children of God and the whole world is under the control of the evil one, that, that can sound like we're the children of God and the rest of the world is evil. But that's, that's not, in fact, what John's saying there. It doesn't say that people who aren't the children of God are evil. What does it say? It says that they're under the control of the evil one. And there's a difference. See, what John wants us to know is that there's been not just a change in our mind, but also a change in our heart. We know that we are the children of God. This is a statement of who we are. This is most fundamental in John's mind as he's written this book. No doubt as he first wrote to those Christians, who they were were just a small group of people who were on the margins of Jewish religion, who were threatened by the Roman Empire and threatened by 
the betrayal of their close friends. But that's not what John wants them to know. John wants them to know who they really are. He wants them to know who they are from God's point of view. Because from God's point of view, they are his children. They are his precious and beloved children. And this is what we get in families. In in the first century, and indeed for probably um, 1,700 years, your identity within your family was not something that could change. It was not malleable. Um, If your father was a carpenter, you would be a carpenter. Uh, Today, it's very different. Um, We have the freedom of a whole range of different occupations. But in the first century, your identity, who you were as a person, was locked in the life of the family. And this is where John wants to conclude his letter. He wants to give them assurance of who they are, who they are locked in the reality of God's family. You see, what John's saying here is, What happens in our life isn't most determinative of who we are. What is most determinative of who we are is our relationship with God. And this is where John wants us to know that we can have assurance. We haven't been born into the family of God by our own effort. We've been chosen by his gracious love. He's given us the Lord Jesus. And it's the Lord Jesus who has, as we've seen in 1 John, bought us with his precious blood. And so if we are children of God, we are truly free. We are truly free from the world around us. We are truly free from even our own concept of ourselves. Our identity is not in our circumstance, our job, our family, our culture, what we do. Our identity is in the Lord Jesus. And it's in him, our identity in him, that our assurance in faith grows. And as we grow in assurance, we come to him in prayer. We come to him boldly, not just for ourselves, but for the sake of others. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that we come before you as your children, dearly beloved. We thank you that we who have been born of you have been changed so radically. We ask, Father, that you would deepen that change. We ask, Father, that you would deepen our assurance. And as you deepen our assurance, we ask, Father, that we would come to you boldly to your throne in prayer and pray in accordance with your will. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as we